you can rebuild a motor, reboot your computer, even kickstart the old scooter. But what do you do when your own mojo is mutilated? That's where we step in. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to the fifth season of the Mojo Radio Show, the show designed to help you get your mojo working in and out of work, five seasons in. And if you're new to the show, first up, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us. And secondly... Uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you hit the subscription button because that way every Monday you won't miss any gold. The Mojo Radio Show is a program that we, we just find interesting people that we think have their mojo working in some aspect of their life, whether it be in sport or business, social enterprise, science, technology. We've had people on wellness, psychology. If we think that people have got something that we can take to apply to our own world in and out of work, then we get them on the show. And let me tell you, in our fifth season, but ahead, we've got an amazing array of guests. Behind the panel, our chief engineer of the Mojo Radio Show, Robbo. Welcome, mate. How you going, Gaz? Before we start, just a quick shout out to our voiceover guy, AP. Uh, a bit late to the studio today, mate. What's going on? We've got standards here, you know? Yeah, sorry about that. I had to stop and get some Manuka honey. Uh, I always use Manuka honey before I do the show to keep my voice nice and, you know, smooth. Hey, I think he's learning something from the show. Do you know, did you see his email last week? Uh, negative. On Tuesday last week, I got an email from AP saying, guys, uh, taking a family day on Thursday, having the day off, sent to all his clients. Uh, yeah, very funny, uh, Robbo. I did have the restraining order removed for one day, so hey, come on, give me a break. <laughs> taking a family day. Taking a family mm. day. That's what they call it these days when you're mm. heading to the pub. Now, I reckon that would have been a roast lunch at the RSL. Kitties, let's go in. It's time, it's time for Daddy and Mummy to have their medicine. Don't knock the RSL roast, man. The Mojo Radio Show. So let's jump into this week's show. I think it's a, it's a good thing to have a coach to help you when you get stuck. And that's exactly what today's guest specializes in. The word coach, as was shared with us by one of our favourite sons of the Mojo Radio Show, Tate Fletcher, he said that the word coach comes from the old stagecoach days because a stagecoach takes you from point A to point B. And our guest today is Stan Peake, and he describes himself as an entrepreneur by nature, a coach by trade, and a catalyst by approach. Now, Stan's a really cool guy. He helps leaders discover and live up to their own potential, which means that he's in the right spot. Uh, all the way from beautiful Canada, Stan, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks for having me, guys. Down under. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> to put everybody in the picture, Stan, if somebody said to you, mate, what do you do? How do you like to reply? That's a great question. And actually, I teach elevator pitches. So short answer to your question, I refer to myself as a breakthrough coach and speaker. Because nobody cares that I'm a business coach. That's wah, wah, wah. <laughs> they really care about what I can do for them, right? And so it's like anything. People don't care what you do. They care what you can do for them. So uh, when I frame elevator pitches, I definitely try to remind people, if you have different hats, you should have different pitches. If I'm trying to attract uh, you know, new speaking engagements, then I would say I'm a powerful presenter. Or if I'm strictly in the case of business coaching, then I would say that I'm a four-time entrepreneur and a breakthrough mm. business coach. So out of the gates, there's a long answer to your short question, guys. <laughs> a good one, though. Do you know, 
We want to spend some time on the coaching thing, Stan, and something I've heard you speak about that I'd like you to elaborate on is you've said that there is a difference for leaders between managing and actually leading. Is it your belief that perhaps today we're seeing more managers and less leaders? Big time. You know, and and here's the thing. There are four distinct stages in the life of a business leader or owner, for that matter. And not everyone goes through every stage because, as you guys know, not everyone ends up becoming an entrepreneur. So early on, people are an owner operator. That's the do everything. You got to wear every hat. You know, you're going to provide a service or build a house and then you got to invoice someone at the end of the day. And when you move past the owner operator stage, we get into the management stage. Critical. Every business needs managers. However, managers are best when they're managing resources like capital, like schedules, like equipment and assets. People are unique. Uh, You know, one day, one of your best employees just got dumped by their boyfriend and another one of your best employees, you know, just happened to stub their toe on the way out of the house and then got into a traffic accident and they're not showing up as their best selves. Someone else just had a crazy night and did whatever, and uh, they're a wild card. So people need leadership, and that's really the third stage that not everyone gets to, by the way. And that is, can you inspire people to be different? Because managers manage everybody the same. Leaders lead everybody differently and unique to their needs. So the fourth stage is mentorship. And that's not leading people, that's creating more leaders through your example and through your inspiration and just through your continued engagement in those up and comers. That's gold. That's gold, Gary, straight out of the gates. Out of the gates, stands drop gold. Canadian gold. Canadian gold. (laughs) Maple gold. Which is uh, not as worth as much as Australian gold. If you compare (laughs) currencies, I mean, I don't know, Canadian gold can probably get me a cup of java there with you guys. Now, we interviewed Ryan Holiday some time back for Athletic Greens, and one one of the books he wrote was called Ego is the Enemy. What part does ego play in great leadership? Well, no part. And so great leaders have learned to silence their ego. We all have ego. We do. Insults hurt. You know, the best leaders I know learn to go get the feedback that's going to help them get better. As an executive coach, I take all kinds of leaders through 360-degree reviews. And some of the most successful people you've met, I've taken Olympians through this exercise, and I've had them in tears at some feedback that stinks. These are people that are on TV in front of millions of people in the most high pressure situations you can imagine. And the odd negative comment can bring them right to tears. So we all have ego, but great leaders have learned through the use of maybe a coach or a 360 review or being surrounded by people who can help them get better. Great leaders have learned to silence their ego and be who they must for their organization as opposed to being what their, uh, you know, more uh, vain ego says they should be. And I'll give you a quick example. In my business, every business has to market, right? So, and I've got a business that I can market one of two ways. 
I can market and say, look how cool I am. Look how I'm the shit. Look what I can do for you. Or I can say, look how cool my clients are. Look at these world leaders and look at the amazing stuff they're doing. And look how privileged I am to work with these people. God, I love what I do. And which one makes me look like more of an asshole? We've interviewed a number of Navy SEALs and they will say that the great leaders they've served under, one of the most prevalent attributes is that humility or the leaders being humble, which is exactly, I think, where you're going with this. And I've heard you say that the military are actually changing the way they look at leadership. Can you just uh, elaborate on that for us? Absolutely, and, and happy to, and also happy to know and hear that perfect example that in the military, the great leaders are known as those people that are humble. Because we look at the military in leadership, our, uh, academia, as really being uh, where the command and control school of management is so prevalent. And, and ironically, academic institutions are also often very command and control, even though the research is pointing to effective leadership being anything but that. Now, part of it is also, here's the thing, there are, there's a great model of leadership by a gentleman named Richard Barrett. And uh, you know, if you go to valuecenter.com, all one word, valuecenter.com, you can really expand on this model that builds on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so what Barrett has done is built a seven-level uh, layer of leadership, and command and control is effective leadership situationally. Let's, let's say this. If there's a fire in your house, Gary, would you like a collaborative discussion on where you'd like to exit the building? Or do you want someone barking at you saying, get out? Yeah. So it's, it's situational. And if there's someone who wants to kill me, I want to know that I'm not a liability to my team and I want to be well-trained and I should react with faster than a snap of a finger. Part of that has to be command and control because I can show no weakness. I can show no selfishness. And so that part of leadership will always be there partly. But if you want to inspire people to do more than the minimum, you got to get into someone's soul. You don't want to just get in someone's grill. Command and control is getting in someone's grill and say, do it because I'm your boss. Do it or you're fired. Get it in someone's soul is do it because I believe you can. I think you were cut out for more. And both work. It's a question of what they work for and how long they work and how deep someone becomes committed as a result of those styles of leadership. And, and the other thing, too, I'll say, last thing I'll say is that people have a choice. And so the military requires numbers. They require brave men and women to show up and defend their countries. And that is where leadership has to really become uh, attractant to, to new members to replace those people that are, uh, you know, retiring or those brave souls that have given their lives. So command and control doesn't inspire that, but um, the call to something greater than yourself does inspire that. And I think that, and I credit the military and, and other armed forces and first responders that they are embracing more of that style of leadership, if nothing else, than to attract new members. It's interesting just uh when I flew back from San Diego recently to Australia after the gig, they when they were boarding the aircraft for American Airlines, they boarded uh, people who needed assistance, people with children, and the military. 
uh, got the first preference. And nice. it was just, it, it was, it was really nice, Rob. I was just, it did, and I was sitting in the lounge there and I was pretty relaxed with the whole thing. And I thought, you know what, that's, it's one of the first times I've seen a company and or uh, general population acknowledge the work of this of the the people the armed forces or the people who are being of service to us and it was such a simple thing but i thought gee every and there were a couple of marines flying with us and i thought just such a nice way to acknowledge them isn't it just a, a simple little thing like that but it says so much and it just makes them pull their chest back and go okay this above money and everything else i'm being recognized it's the right thing to do I don't know about you guys. I had a grandfather who fought in the Second World War and fortunately was able to come back from the war. And I never want to be in the position where I have to make that choice. He didn't want to have to make that choice either. But, you know, he fought and potentially was going to give his life for our freedom. And, you know, if pushed into the corner, of course, I hope that I would make that brave a decision. But for those men and women that go out there and are in that position and choose in non-war times to do things that are just scary or even unimaginable so that we can enjoy our freedom to go and be and do what we want. I love what I do. I am doing what I was put on earth, this earth to do. And I owe that freedom to people like my grandfather, people like those brave Marines that were on the plane. Isn't it interesting, though, that being humble that we were just talking about, you talk to any of these average diggers who have come home from World War II, they're, they're, they're all the same. No matter how many of them you speak to, 99.9% of them are all just, well, we did the job we were sent there to do. There's, there is no ego. It's amazing. I totally agree. If we could just camp with the military just for one second, and I just want to get your thoughts on this, Stan. So if we say... There is command and control. There's a place for that. Then is the other place de- decentralised command where I remember hearing Jocko Willinks, who is a Navy SEAL who served for 20 years, served in Ramadi, uh, wrote Extreme Ownership with his partner Leif. He talks a lot today about how they went through decentralised command in Ramadi where there was a briefing, everybody knew the mission, they knew what the expectations were. They had the. They knew they had the resources. They had the direction. But then Jocko would say, in the heat of battle, when things went pear shaped, they were absolutely expected to take control of their own situation. And his words were, "Combat is an exercise in creativity." Is that? There's command and control. In your mind, Stan, is that the other part of leadership that you're seeing the change? We're going now to more decentralised command where if they're given the right mission, the right purpose, the values by which we operate and the expectations and you have the resources, you're then empowered to go and do the job? 100%. And that's the word I would use is empowered. I'll call it empowered decision-making. So you you touched on a lot of good things there. And if we were to unpack that, you know, if people have the mission and the values, any organization could be the military, could be a church, could be a business, even a family. If you can align on values, then you know who belongs and who doesn't belong. And by the way, you can be a great person and not belong. If, If you apply at a certain organization, it just doesn't feel right. It's not because you applied at some satanic cult. It just doesn't fit with how you make your decisions. And so go be happier somewhere else where you're around people who feel and think the same as you do. 
not exactly the same, not robots, but people who value the same thing. So if you can align on vision and values, and then you can align on the objectives, the intended outcomes, then leave it to smart people to figure out how to get there. And that is the model. That is the, if you look at the literature, that is what the military is leading the way on is how we can really get aligned on vision and why we're all here together and who we are and where we're going. And then what the, what the generals and the leaders in, in this case are realizing is you need the field intelligence from the trenches, so to speak, to empower central decision-making. It's, it's a, you know, decision-making in large organizations is an ever-evolving thing. It looked, whether we want to switch from military to a sales organization, you can't make decisions in the boardroom on behalf of your customers and be successful. You need your sales teams to go out there and, hey, this is what's getting traction in the market. This is what, you know, nobody wants. And they got to bring that back to the boardroom in a respectful way, of course. And then we can make decisions on our product and service lines. We can make decisions on our client acquisition strategies. I mean, as my mentor says, the, you know, the eight most dangerous words in business is, well, that's just the way we've always done it. I'm not sure if that was eight, year, eight words or not, by the way, but <laughs> you get the point. It's interesting, Stan. I've heard you interviewed a lot. I've heard your work. I've read your blogs and so on. And being a coach, you've got a, a, a strong background in sport as well, which we'll get to. I'm curious to know when you are working with successful people and leaders, you've obviously moved them from good intention through to them actually doing it and achieving their goals, achieving those dreams you spoke about. How do you personally move people through that gray zone? Because it seems everyone's got the good intention, However, not enough people are actually getting after it and actually doing it to pursue their dreams. There is a gray zone they step into and get lost. How do you personally move people through that? Great question. And I'm going to give you two, two tactical ways that I do that. But before I do that, I want to walk you through a brief coaching model. And so, as you mentioned, I mean, results are really only going to happen through our actions. But some people aren't taking those actions despite their intent. Well, actions are a limiting way. I mean, you can't really move the needle if you say, well, you know what? Just take better actions, guys. That's not leadership. So what happens before we take actions is that we have emotions. We have emotions based, uh, that might be uh, motivation. You know, being motivated is a state. It's an emotional state. Being anxious is also a motivational state. And we'll take different actions in those two different emotional states. So what, what precurses your emotion is your thoughts and your beliefs. It's the way we look at the world. So let's just talk about a, you know, maybe we're talking about an executive in an organization that's revenue is flat. And maybe they're the, you know, chief sales officer or the VP of business development. They are tasked with growing that top line revenue number. If they view the economy as sinking, then there are, that's their thought and their belief. They are going to have an emotion of basically being desperate. I have to get this number up. Businesses all around me are closing. I'm screwed. What kind of actions would that person take? Desperate actions. And if they take any action and don't get traction right away, they're far too likely to quit. Take the same executive 
And if they say the economy is really the sum of everything that's going on, some businesses are down, some are up. Right now, there's a depression. Well, this is when Warren Buffett would buy because really it's on sale. So if things are going down right now, where's the opportunity? If one business is closing, someone else is buying them up. Where have I not thought to look? That person who went from a place of opportunistic thinking and creative thinking is now inspired. They might be on to the next amazing idea. And so that model really has me apply this in two ways. The first thing is if someone hasn't really taken actions, I look at their goals. If people have goals that are big enough, that scare them and excite them, and that commit them to action, they don't play small. If my goal was to have four or five clients and have a nice little lifestyle business, we wouldn't be talking right now. My goal is to make the world a better place by awakening the human spirit. Well, that goal gets me out of bed at five o'clock, 5.15 every morning. So that takes different action. The second way I look at it is I explore people's limiting beliefs. And you do that through probing questions. Quick example, working with a company, a couple of business owners, and we were really in our first meeting talking about where they wanted to go. So I said, like, give me the roadmap, guys. Where are we going? What's the goal? And one of the principals, his response was, well, for a company our size, and I cut him off. That's not how you set your goals. That's like setting an athletic goal right after you get injured. Well, I just tore my hamstring, so my goal is to run the 100 meters in 16 minutes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Limiting beliefs, it goes back, remember, thoughts, beliefs, emotions, actions. So do not set goals that have any limiting belief or any sort of justification. The best, the most successful people in the world, they set goals that are crazy, and they have no idea how they're going to get there but their goals prompt their actions and they let that be. Goals or dreams? Well, really the difference is that a goal is a dream with a plan. So it should be both. Good answer. I like that answer. That's a great answer. <laughs> Beautiful. Absolutely. Beautiful. You can come back on this show. You're going pretty good. <laughs> Happy to, Chance. I'm having a blast you guys. And actually, I was listening to one of your shows not too long ago and, and there was a lot of talk of Dos Equis. So uh, I've been here a while now and I'm – I don't see any. Uh, I, I love it. <laughs> I'm going to Mexico in uh, a few weeks, and um, I'm, I'm sure I'll have a couple there, but I, I don't see my Dos Equis for our interview. Look hard, mate. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Beautiful. Nice. You guys are on it. Now, tell me something. <clears throat> Let's just talk leadership for a second. Let's talk a successful leader that you know or work with. Where should the root of motivation come from for a successful leader? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. You know where it comes from? In most people, in most people's case, it comes from their hell. So, and, and let me define that. The greatest gift that most truly successful people have to offer the world comes from their worst experience. Leadership, I, I live it, I love it, and one, I, I'm going to be on another show coming up here pretty quick, and we're going to be talking about this juxtaposed experience I had, really a tale of two bosses. I won't go too deep into it now because I don't want to you know, ruin what we'll talk about in the other show. But 
I've had some terrible leaders. I've had some leaders that operated in ways that I could not understand that absolutely prioritized profit over people. They treated people like shit. Why do you think leadership matters so much to me? I mean, human nature is this. Human nature around motivation is this. We're motivated by two principal things, and that is to seek out pleasure and avoid pain. And it's not equal. The human brain tends to avoid pain more than it does tend to seek out pleasure, which is why the most highly driven people on the planet typically have some very challenging upbringing. Human nature is lazy. There's a a great study that if you run five miles every day, you'll put an inch on your waistline every decade. Do you guys know why that is? The human body and the human brain are conservative in nature. As soon as you start running five miles a day, you're shocking the body. You're going to start burning calories. You're going to recruit more muscle. You're going to lose some weight. But if you run those same five miles every day, your body has adjusted and adapted. Your synapses fire more efficiently, and you now can produce that same amount of work with less effort. So your body starts to conserve energy. It burns fewer calories. And the same amount of work every day, now that's a routine. It's not a shock to the body. So eventually, you will start to gain some weight. I mean, five miles running every day, you're going to be a healthy person. But you get the point of the analogy. And and mentally, it's the same thing. You know, we need to constantly uh, be adding new stimulus in order to get better. I heard you interviewed Stan and... There was a line that you used, which I thought was a cracker. So I wrote it in my journal that I wanted to ask you about today. You shared a thought on vulnerability and you said, if a leader is not vulnerable, then the company is vulnerable. Can you just give us a bit more on that? Yeah, damn, you did your homework. Love it. Well, I also want to expand on that, that I truly believe that vulnerability is strength. And so as a leader, we can lead with one of two approaches, well, many approaches, but for the sake of this argument, let's take two different approaches. We can lead with our CV. We can lead with our credentials. We can lead with the awards we've won and all of our achievements as a way of inspiring people that they should want to emulate our example so they can try to emulate our success. That works to a degree. Uh, I had a lot of challenges by trying to lead that way. Even after, excuse me, I had hiked Mount Kilimanjaro and published a book and helped business grow in revenue because pretty soon, the more you achieve, the more you distance yourself from your more junior uh, coworkers or direct reports. So pretty soon people start to look at that and say, well, I can never do that. You know, come on, you're crazy. You wake up at what time and you have a kid and, and, and like it just starts to get crazy. But instead, if we say, listen, I failed lots. I have failed lots. Let me tell you how I failed. And because I've failed this many times, this is how I'm driven. Now you humanize yourself. So taken to the concept of businesses that aren't willing to be vulnerable, become vulnerable. If that leader doesn't humanize him or herself to their team, the community commitment that they gain from their team is less. So now they're going to potentially lose some talent to a better offer down the street who can pay more. Or 
somewhere that galvanizes greater commitment to their culture through better leadership. And if you lose talent, well, we already know there's an economic impact to that, right? Uh, if you're customer facing, you might lose some key accounts. Uh, 1.5 times the salary to replace someone is the typical statistic that's coming out of uh, the research in human resources. So there's a definite economic impact if we're not vulnerable, if we start losing our team. And the same goes for our customers and how we lead transparently. Uh, in my business association, there is a great, uh, a great uh, brewery called Village Brewery. I'll throw them some love. It's a highly competitive <laughs> marketplace. We're, we're talking Dos Equis. I'll throw Village Brewery some love. We, uh, you know, the, the craft brewery is a highly competitive marketplace, and the financial input is one of the barriers to entry. And so some people would say, if I can get together the cash, I'm in and I get to block other people out. But what these guys are doing is they're actually having these co-op startup programs for smaller microbreweries to get more people into the industry because they're passionate about what they do and they think there's more gifted artisans that need to get their product out to the world. Wow. Who's, I mean, you think any of their suppliers are leaving? They're bought into the mission. Those guys, even though they're inviting competition into their marketplace, they're, they got love everywhere they go. You know, it reminds me of a story I heard of Bodie Miller, the famous American uh, winter Olympic hero and Olympic gold medalist and downhill skier. And whenever he would invent a brand new binding or something which would make his skis or his performance go faster, he would give it to all his competitors because that was just the way he was. And he became a bit of a legend based on it because he just wanted everybody to go fast. He wanted to lift the sport. Yeah. What a different level. Oh, and, you know, as a coach, the coaches are everywhere. Coaches are a dime a dozen these days, which is, again, terrible marketing, right? Terrible advertising on my behalf. But we can either fight for this small scraps that everybody's fighting for, or we can practice an abundance mindset. And you know what? There's more than 65,000 businesses in Calgary, and I work all over the country and with clients across the world as well. So do I need to get in line and fight for leftovers or am I on a podcast here teaching other coaches models they can use and approaches they can use, but in doing so you lift the industry and everybody gets better. And more importantly, who do we serve businesses? What I just tell you guys, I got into what I do because there's too many shitty leaders out there, too many selfish leaders out there. So if through my impact, I can help even other coaches be better. Everybody wins. It ain't just about my direct path to profitability. And part of your humility, Stan, is you're you're happy to share secrets. Can you share the 80% secret with our listeners? Oh, 100%. So it's the old 80-20 rule, which means you're going to get 80% of your results from 20% of your customers. Or if you're looking internally as an executive, you're going to get 80% of your results from 20% of your team. Now, does that mean chop 80%? Of course not. Leaders need to know where there's an impact or an ROI on their time. That's the value of a leader to an organization. And and so going back to that empowered decision-making we talked about earlier, you know, in the 1980s, the, the role of the leader was to be the smartest guy or girl in the room. They're different. Absolutely different. And uh, as one of my clients rightfully points out, 
if you're the leader and you're the smartest guy in the room, you're the dumbest guy in the room. Yeah. Right? You got to hire people that are smarter than you in all these areas. And so going back to that 80, uh, 20 rule, you know, one quick thing I look at for businesses, if they're wondering, uh, they're also going to get 80% of their profit from 20% of their customers. If they don't know how that's going to work, simple. You know, if you're using QuickBooks or anything like that, export your sales report. Arrange it top to bottom from greatest spend to lowest spend. Don't just go after who spends the most. Break it down into percentiles. And if you start to notice a trend in your top 20%, well, now that probably is a different demographic profile than the bottom 20%. It might be a different uh, postal code. It might be a different zip code. Whatever the case may be, your marketing efforts are going to change. And if you dig deep enough, you might find out what your value proposition is for your biggest fans. Like that, if you have paying clients, do the work, and you're just going to see way better customer retention and higher customer lifetime value by doing that simple work. You've got a view on that, Stan, adding value to your customers or clients, and then you've said we should charge what we're worth. But a lot of us, we teeter on the point of being scared to actually charge what we think we're worth, don't we? Absolutely. And we've all been there. I've been there. I will always remember my first uh, engagement in this business. And I've, this is my fourth business. I've been in sales a lot. The third book that's about to come out is on sales. So, but even still, new business, your, your imposter syndrome, which we'll come back to, that comes in and you're wondering, oh, is this person going to pay this? Ah, I don't know. Which is, you get in your own way. It's so important. And, and going back to that imposter syndrome, everybody faces that. Maybe you're about to give your first speech. Maybe you're wondering, oh, geez, this is a big crowd. Are they wondering who am I to give this speech? Who am I to give this speech? What's my background? I just saw this person. He's been doing the same thing I've been doing for longer. Oh, I'm going to just crucify myself up here on stage. This is awful. We get in our own head. And the fact of the matter is, if you've been asked to get on stage, if you've been asked to give a board meeting, if you've been asked to give a presentation, there's a reason. You've got a snapshot that other people don't have that's a refreshing view. You've got the most specific and relevant experience. There's a reason that you're given the speech and let's just leave it at that um, instead of getting into and analyzing how am I going to do and all. And of course I go deeper. Like I, anyone of my clients that does talk, I go into how to optimize their state and all that kind of stuff, which is a whole nother talk. Um, but know that imposter syndrome is real and know that everybody else faces it. As soon as you know that everyone else who's a success has questioned their own worth, then we can kind of breathe this sigh of relief thinking it's not just us. How do you deal with it, mate? I mean, I, uh, the imposter syndrome, we had a we interviewed a lady specifically on that uh, maybe six odd months ago. It ended up being a very, very popular show because to your point, we all suffer from it. How does Stan deal with that yourself? You are successful, you're coaching, you have people approaching you. What's your own internal dialogue to deal with the imposter syndrome? One thing we've already covered, and that is have goals that really, truly matter because we're going to fail. I did not get that client the first time I was out there, you know, figuratively shaking in my boots, questioning my own worth. 
I might as well have said, well, this is what I charge, but if you don't think I'm worth it, I'll, I'll, I'll charge less. And I, mean, I blew it. I totally blew it. And I, one of my clients, who's also an executive coach, really just starting her practice, we laugh about it. She told me how badly she butchered her first one. But guess what? Now she has value for her clients. I don't get paid to go talk about how cool I am and how successful I am. It's sharing experiences that lead to wisdom. And most of those come from failure. And so going back to your point, how do I deal with, with imposter syndrome? I had to get back out there. I couldn't quit after my first failure. I had to go back out there and fail again and then try again and try again because the simple act of doing actually elevates our self-esteem. I'm a firm believer getting a no from a client will build my self-esteem more than failing to take action. Because if I fail to take action, my subconscious mind knows that it was fear, knows that it was weakness, and that's going to grow. So playing it safe and not hearing no, you, you peak, come on, our subconscious brain is smart. It knows better. And that fear will grow and build into something that is just, you know, the old saying, a mountain out of a molehill, right? Yeah. If I hear no, at least I'm trying. And for this, for my fourth book, which I've been working on uh, simultaneously as the third book goes to fruition, it's all about interviews with top level leaders. And I got shot down by the Dalai Lama recently, which I love to joke about. I mean, how busy do you think the Dalai Lama is? especially at 82 years old. And I've never met the Dalai Lama, but guess what? I can t say that. And when I say that I was shot down by the Dalai Lama, people are like, oh shit, he's not screwing around. He's going for it. I think it's um, probably important at this point just to send a hello to the Dalai Lama. We call him the Dalinator. He a uh, big fan of the show. He is always emailing and sending texts. Some of the photos he sends us, isn't it, Robert, to the studio? Oh. He's got a sense of humor, that guy. That photo of him jet skiing the other week, you know, thumbs, oh, thumbs loves, in the air. Oh. Loves a Doseki, the oh, Dalai Lama. Absolutely. The Laminator, the absolutely. lobster. The Lamster. And let me say, your holiness, His Holiness, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> oh, thank you listening. for at least allowing me to uh, use this and leverage it. No hard feelings, because now it's a great story. And also, we've Your all, Holiness, if you're willing, still willing to do that interview. Yeah, we've all shaved our heads for the Dali. Can I just go back on something you just said in your last answer before we move on? You were talking about how we have to hear no occasionally. Is that because we're building grit or is there something else behind that? Definitely building grit. It does help you uh, develop thicker skin and any entrepreneur needs thick skin. Before you need a breakthrough business idea, you need thick skin because nothing is landing on your lap just because. That's any business. Show me the most successful. Richard Branson is, I would say, quite successful. He's very open with the failures that Virgin has had over the years. However, in addition to building thick skin, hearing no also helps us iterate our own business model or sales approach through biofeedback. We don't even have to get feedback from the other party. We know how it felt. I, I get another client, uh, you know, in building her business, her homework was to go get 10 no's for a new concept, to go to a market that she didn't want to serve and go pop in and get 10 no's, total cold call 10 no's. And that was in a week, and I thought she was going to shoot me. But regardless, when we got back together, uh, I, first thing I said, do you hate me? Did you, you know, do you want to punch me? 
But what she came back with was evidence on why no is so important is because she had built her entire, entire sales strategy in a week. Because the first one got a no, tripping over her words, all that kind of stuff. The second one, intuitively, she realized how unprepared she was. So for her second no, she had to do homework on a prospect, pulled up the website, pulled up the person's product, sales, all the things they could do. And she was automatically more prepared for the second no, even though the first person didn't give her any constructive feedback on what she could do better. That's the other benefit of getting no. Nice. And then the third, if you will, yeah, the third one, if you will, is that it's a gut check. If we can have the right frame of mind, even if you heard no, you're brave enough to get out there and do. And most of success is what we do. I just actually launched a, uh, a quick message, uh, social media this morning on how success is what happens in the shadows. It's not the, it's not me being on this show and, and thank you for the kudos guys. Absolutely. But you know, this as well, the success is not just the guests you have on here. It's the homework you did. You did, how many of my interviews did you listen to so that you could have the right questions formulated? How many reach outs do you do with leaders all over the world? That's your success. Not the stuff that people but here on air. Earlier in the show, Stan, you talked about probing questions. And that's something I, I, I love the questioning and interview process. What's your favorite probing question? There's no better question than why. You know, I might have a question and every now and then because I'm extremely present when I'm with my clients. I, I practice a rule of 100% focus. If I'm in person, it's obvious. If I'm over the phone, I look like a crazy person. I'm on my headset walking around my basement, no device, nothing on, so I can be 100% present. And every now and then I'm like, oh, crap, I wish I could write that down. But the best question generally is why. Because why roots us to purpose? We could figure out how all day long, that gives us a roadmap. We could have the roadmap to the buried treasure. We still have a choice as to whether or not we want to go there. So why will always take us deeper into purpose? I like Jim Collins' five whys. Ask a question why they do something, they'll give you a surface answer. We ask a deeper why and a deeper why, and we get more and more profound. And when we can get profound, we get to a commitment level that's uncommon. I, I tell people this all the time. If you find your purpose, you lose your ability to quit. That's why I love the question why you get so deep that someone can't quit. Rocky Mountain Gold there, Stan. Cha-ching. <laughs> Rocky Mountain Gold, well, my like friend. Like I said, I've, I've been up a lot, I've been up a lot longer <laughs> than you guys. It's, it's, you're, you're, you know, crack of dawn, you're just getting after it. I mean, I'm... I'm almost uh, ready to go pick up my kid and start making dinner. <laughs> you you talked about setting lofty goals stroke dreams. What's Stan's goal for discomfort in the next 30, 60, 90 days? Oh, I love that. Great question. Goal for discomfort. Well, the first thing is uh, I, built, I find it still uh, – I'm not comfortable when I have to do cold reach outs and I have to do that sometimes when I'm looking at people that would endorse book number three or participate in book number four. I don't like asking for anything. Um, but that being said that the very nature of the work I'm trying to do to get the best leaders out there in the world to participate in a project to move the needle towards the world, having better leaders, I got to reach out to people I don't know. So that's what I'm doing in terms of being uncomfortable. 
Uh, also, my routine is built on discomfort. I get up at 5.15 every day, work out. No, it doesn't matter. If I'm super sore, I'll, even if I just stretch. But I have to do something physical, and I have to feed my mind every single day. And so the time that alarm goes off forces me to be uncomfortable because, as John Maxwell says, and I love it, the only way to guarantee a better tomorrow is to get better today. You work with leaders you teach leadership. And I think just something just for everybody listening and for us in the studio is that it's also personal leadership in leading your own life, leading a family, leading a PNC group. It's not just a business leadership. We're talking leadership as in ourselves or those around us. As a leader, Stan, where do you think you feel, fall short and what are you currently working on as Stan, the leader, to get better? Number one thing I can get better at right now is saying no. And I say that uh, on a day where I just agreed to join an advisory committee for another uh, organization. So there is case <laughs> in point right there. Uh, today is uh, a 14-hour day uh, as a result of not being able to say no. And, and you know what? Some of the people I'm reaching out to, even for this book, are saying no in a nice way because they have too much on their plate. That's a lesson I have to get better at, especially the fact that, you know, I have a, a wife who's as patient as a Mediterranean, Mediterranean red blooded Greek could be. Um, and I got a son who's got hockey all over the place. And it's very important that I show up uh, in those roles in a big way, not just give them my leftovers. So I got to get better at saying no. Um, and then, you know, I also got to continue to learn because as I tell people all the time, I'm not going to get paid for the next 20 years because of what I learned in the last 20 I got to get better every day. It's really important. And I've even got goals around how much more I learn every week, every day. You know, if we're not getting better, we might as well stop. The best athletes in the world, they put in the best practice. There's so many stories around that. I mean, Jerry Rice, Walter Payton, they were some of the best football players in the world. Both were record holders, of course, still are. And they had some of the most grueling off-season workouts. Sidney Crosby, anyone you want to look at that's a ridiculous success. Like I said, guys, success happens in the shadows. They put in the work so they can show up and wow the world. It's another line for the studio wall, Gary. Success happens in the shadows. <laughs> There's a few shadows in this little studio. That's right. Um, and s- speaking of shadows, let me take you down a dark laneway. Beautiful. Here's a, here's, a, here's a quote that we share. This is on our show notes each week, and it is the underlying theme to our show, Stan, and I think it's something that resonates with you. I'm going to read you this quote, and I'd like your thoughts. Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, Wow, what a ride. Oh, my gosh. Love that one. Um, I've read it a number of times and firm believer. You got to be able to just go for everything you want in this life because you got one kick at the can. You know, and I'll say this. One of the biggest things, my goal, as I mentioned, is to awaken the human spirit. My specific tangible goal, you guys, is to reignite one million souls. A million It's not a small number. And the reason why that's just so important is because I've made mistakes and I've squandered my potential. I was playing small with my talents, 
for far too long. And I saw, well, I experienced misery, depression, despair. And I'm alive, I want to say, with every fiber of my being. And it's not because I'm any smarter than anybody else. Your state, you, you guys are the Mojo radio show. Your mojo is your state and your state is a decision. We decide how we feel. We decide how we show up in the world. I mean, barring extreme circumstances, guys, the way we walk around in the world, the bodies we walk around in, the minds we walk around in, the states we walk around in are all decisions. Okay? So go big. I've broken eight bones in my life. My first business wasn't successful. I was, uh, I've been fired twice. I've had a talk that I put out there and had nobody show up. I could go on for quite a ways on the number of ways I failed you guys. But you know what? You have to do that sometimes. And that's what leads to success. And if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, God forbid, I've left it all in the field, especially the last decade and then some. So I'm going to continue living by that very funny but very true philosophy that I'm not leaving anything for the corpse. It'll be a closed casket. Trust me, guys. Um, <laughs> it, it absolutely will. Uh, my wife already knows. And at the first earliest opportunity, pull the plug. Uh, and you guys will like this. There's a, a sign in my basement um, that it, it's one of those framed, like, vintage old school things. And it says... I'm pretty sure my last words will be hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> I mean, helping oh, others along the way, but I believe you got to go big, man. Life is supposed to be, it's not always easy. A lot of times it's really hard, but I mean, come on, life is the most precious and beautiful gift any of us will ever receive. Make it what you want it to be, man. I'm going to say, Stan, that hold my beer and watch this. I think that is probably one of the great lines that has been dropped on this show. We've had some absolute crackers, but that's a stinger. That is such a good line. <laughs> that is definitely going on the wall. Um, Stan, Beautiful. just before we let you go, uh, as I'm very respectful of your time, you, you seem to be a guy who has been through a lot. You are helping people get through a lot. You seem like a guy who has put a lot of thought into themselves and how they can be of service to others. What's the probing question that somebody could ask themselves immediately to develop self-awareness? Well, I think people are already asking themselves this question and they don't know how to answer it. It's the biggest question that plagues humanity. Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? But they don't know where to go from there. And so if I could give a couple more tactile, useful questions. We already mentioned this, your greatest gifts guy, your greatest gifts guys come from your greatest adversity. So somebody who doesn't know why they're here, somebody who's playing small, somebody who's dialing it in, going through the motions, let's go back to your hell. And again, if you're doing this with a, you know, a colleague or a friend or a spouse, you may not have to disclose what you've gone through. Do this on your own or even with a therapist and ask why, not why me? But why was I meant to go through that? Because as Ed Milet, who's a very, very successful coach, talks about things don't happen to us. They happen for us. So, and the way I spin that is we've already paid the tuition. You've already gone through the hell. Most people stop there and they forget to get the lesson. 
If you've paid the tuition, make sure you get the lesson. Ask yourself why you are meant to go through that brutal adversity. And no matter how painful to acquire, you now have wisdom and skills that can serve the world. That's number one. And number two, you have this awful experience that you never want to go back to. But you know what? You probably can go deeper than that. And you probably want to help prevent others from getting there. So if my calling, guys, is to awaken the human spirit, why is that? That's because I've been depressed. And that's because I was squandering my potential. And it sucked. So now, with whatever time I have left on this planet, I am going to awaken as many souls as I can because I've got tools and experience and expertise on how to light a fire in someone and how to direct them towards action. And I will make the world a better place by doing that for as many people as possible. So somebody who feels the world is out to get them, get out of your head, get out of your head and stop playing victim and ask yourself better questions. Why me is a shitty question. Why was I meant to experience that and what was I meant to learn? That's a much better question. On that note, one final question, Stan. People will want to know more about you and find out about the work you're doing. Where do you send people? I would love it if people go to Insight Performance Coaching. That's I-N-S-I-T-E, play on words there, insightperformancecoaching.com. There, there's all the links to the different social media channels. I'm pretty active on social media. I believe lead with value. I give lots of free content away uh, in terms of everything from YouTube to LinkedIn to Facebook and Twitter. So come on, let's have a conversation. There's lots of free tools to download on my website as well. And if we get into a deeper conversation, fantastic. But come on there, load up with the free stuff and uh, leave me some comments. Let me know what you like, what you didn't like, what we can do better. Uh, and funnier jokes so that uh, next time I'm on a show, I can I drop some gold like <laughs> my beer. Well, I'll give you a comment, mate. This has been fantastic. I, I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. I love the clarity of your thinking. I love the... The depth of your purpose, I mean, to awaken the human spirit, it's just beautiful, mate. And I think you're genuine. You walk the talk. Uh, There's a lot of passion in what you do. So thank you for your time. Thank you for giving up your time from your family and from your work to be with us. It's It's been a real treat, mate. Gentlemen, it's been my pleasure. Definitely haven't given up the time. You gentlemen have worked hard and prepared and put in the work to make me look great. And you do that for all your guests. So Thank you. And please, I implore you to keep doing the great work you're doing. I love you guys' show. Awesome, man. Now just hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) Mojo Radio Show. Well, that was time well spent. It was. I I like Stan. I think he'd be the sort of guy I would like to sit down for a cup of coffee with because he he knows his stuff. He's very passionate. He's very, very smart. What's really cool about having Stan on the show is that we now, because the show's in its fifth season, suddenly guests 
are hearing about us and getting in contact with us because that's how it all came about. Stan actually got in touch with us and said, guys, what's the show all about? Can I get on? So um, nice. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that's nice. That's a, that's a big kudos. The Mojo Pages. The book I am reviewing today is called Rework by Jason Freed and David Heinemir Hansen. I reread this book. It's about a decade old, I guess, and I reread it because I have a bookcase that I put aside my best books and then once a month I go and pick out a book I've read before and I reread it because every time you reread it, you get something new from it. And let's face it, you want to get your value out of a book, right? You pay good money for it. You want to get your value. Now, this book, the front cover has a quote from Seth Godin, who's probably the godfather of marketing, brand and business. And he said, ignore this book at your peril. The back of the book has some interesting things written on it. Some points from the book. As soon as possible is poison. Meetings are toxic. Fire the workaholics, emulate drug dealers. Fight bloat. Planning is guessing. And there's one particular piece inside the book that I liked. The core of your business should be built around things that won't change. Things that people are going to want today and 10 years from now. Those are the things you should invest in. And this book is written in very, very short chapters. It's only one or two pages per chapter, which makes it easy for us to read. But number two, it's just full of literally hundreds of paragraphs like that that just make you stop, think, review your business and your strategy. That particular point is the basis of Amazon because Jeff Bezos believed what won't go out of fashion, you want it as soon as you can possibly get it and you want it the best price you can possibly get it. So if you think about your business, what are you doing now in your business that will never go out of fashion? Robbo, we have one of the authors coming on the show the next couple of weeks, David Heinemir Hansen. I because I love this book and I've read it a number of times, recommended it. It's in my top books. I wrote to him and said, mate, how about coming on the show? And he said, sure, why not? Great. I'd love to know about some of those titles. They sound really interesting. The book is just full of stuff like that. Uh, And one that I always remember is he said, when you have a new idea, somebody says, yeah, but in the real world, that's not going to happen. And he talks about what a dark, (laughs) he talks about what a dark, awful, sad place the real world in is the real world has no new ideas, no new thinking, it's full of status quo. And I thought, it's so true. So anyway, I think it's a great book. I think it's worth getting. It's called Rework. Uh, David and Jason also wrote a book called Remote, and it just so happens that I was in a bookshop in Melbourne last week after finishing the Mojo Live and Straight Up session, and I found Remote. I bought it. It's this week's book. So uh, by the time we get him on, I'll be all fired up about work and remoting. Nice. Can I throw a quick book in there, one that I've been reading? Oh, yeah. What? <laughs> oh, this is- it's, a, it's, a, it's actually not a book, but it's a magazine, and I know you read it for the articles. No, I'm actually not jesting. It's actually a really good book. It's called The Five-Minute Marketer by Stefan Ekberg. And you talking about short paragraphs reminded me of it. It's, uh, it's, it's 395 five-minute things you can do to market yourself or your business. And similar to your book, um, it's actually not even chapters. It's just little paragraphs. 395 paragraphs of five min- of things you can do in five minutes once a day to um, to market yourself or your product. So for the five-minute marketer, Stefan Ekberg, I grabbed it from the library and it's a ripper read. Must be very small words if an audio engineer is getting something from it. All the pictures help. God of rock. 
Thank you for this chance to kick ass. We are your humble servants. Please give us the power to blow people's minds with our high voltage rock. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now let's get out there and melt some faces! The Mojo Radio Shows. Lessons in Rock. So coming into the studio this morning to record, you had the cranberries on high rotation, it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I can't claim to be a super fan of the cranberries, but what I always did love was Dolores O'Riordan's voice. It's just one of those creamy rock voices that you don't hear a lot of, but when they do pop their head up, they become really memorable. And I was surfing around the net on the weekend and just happened to come across a story about Dolores and how she actually joined the band. And apparently the, uh, the guys in the band knew, as she said, four chords between them uh, and were looking for a singer. She walked in the room and they said to her, well, why should we hire you? And she said, well, give me a melody or a song that you've written you've got no lyric for. And they gave her some music and she walked away and reflected on her first kiss and wrote the lyrics for Linga, came back to the band and said, well, play the song, have a listen to this. And she got the gig and about three months later, Linga became their first number one hit. And I just really liked that story. And I think the lesson for me from that is not just one of persistence and resilience, but if you go back to your marketing book, when we are marketing ourselves in any capacity, whether we're meeting somebody for the first time on a date or whether we're presenting or doing a pitch, in the back of your mind, you've got to have a reason to believe. And it's something we do for the show a lot is, well, why should I? Why should I believe what you're saying is true? Now, you've got to back it up, don't get me wrong. But that's a wonderful story about going in and when someone puts you on the spot rather than just a false story. She's actually backed it up and said, well, here's why. So why don't we play a bit of Cranberry Skid Out? Yeah, love this voice. See you next week, guys.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.